and you know we can stay after church and fellowship too <laughs> Oh, don't you just love fellowship? I just love, I love it, I love it, I love it. I'll never complain about after being online like for two months and not having anybody in the church. Man, take as long as you want. Let's talk, let's enjoy. But here's the good part. We get to get into God's Word this morning. And so, amen, absolutely. If you need a Bible, guys are up, they have Bibles in their hands, they want to bring one to your seat. If you need one, raise your hand and we'll get one. As you do, turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're in the third church in chapter 2, the church of Pergamos. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Yeah, start there. Just read and Genesis, you'll get to it. Had a guy years ago tell me, was it a Christian? He says, you know, I read the Bible. I read Revelation. It doesn't make any sense. They said, well, you start with the end of the movie. You got to start in the beginning. But uh, All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, starting in verse 12 there of chapter 2, Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things say he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The title of my message this morning is The Danger of Compromise. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for how great you are to bring us together uh, to get again this Sunday, Lord, and given us the opportunity to open up your word. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here giving us understanding of your word and application in our lives through your word. And we ask that you would just bless this service as we gather together, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our children downstairs as they're being taught your word at the same time, Lord. Speak to their hearts. Cause them to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for the relationship with you as well as for us this morning. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, Would you especially touch them today that they would come to know you as Lord and as Savior. So bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. 
Amen. Many people today, they say they love Jesus, but they also love the sin of the world. And because they dabble in both, they really are quite miserable. It's like the guy who could not decide what side he wanted to fight for during the Civil War, the North or the South. So he put the coat on of the North and the pants of the South. And guess what? He got shot at from both sides. Compromise will do that to you. It leads to ruin. Commentator Graham Scroge said this of compromise, and I quote, It prompts us to be silent when we ought to speak for fear of offending. It prompts us to praise when it is not deserved to keep people our friends. It prompts us to tolerate sin and not to speak out because to do so might give us enemies. Compromise, it causes us to lower our standards in order to extend our reach. The old-time preacher Vance Havner once said, A dog that follows everybody is no good to anybody. And sadly, there are many in the church today that are living that compromised life. The Bible gives us an example in Revelation 2 of, of such a church. It was the church of Pergamos, located in Pergamum, the, the capital city of, of Asia Minor. The sin of the church in Pergamum was that of compromise. And if there's something that needs to be said to the church today, it's certainly this warning of compromise and, and the danger that it, that it brings today. We see it today. Now, before we get to what Jesus says to this church, we need to be reminded of, of his application of the seven letters to the seven churches. It's a fourfold fold application. First of all, they are applied historically. Historically, there were seven churches and seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia at that time, modern-day Turkey today. Secondly, they're applied practically. They teach us a lot about church life. Almost every problem, every difficulty, every challenge that the church faces today, we can see are addressed in these seven letters. Thirdly, they're applied personally. They speak to us individually as believers. That's why each one ends with the words, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, they speak to us prophetically. That is, each church represents a certain stage in church history, starting with the church of Ephesus, which is the, the early church, up until the death of the Apostle John, uh, approximately 99 A.D., then the next church in history comes the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church from the 2nd century to the 4th century. And now we come to the church of Pergamos, the third church from 312 A.D. to 600 A.D. and the compromised church. And so on, we'll see Thyatira and we'll see the other churches that we hit in the next couple of weeks. What's interesting historically is that each one of the names of these churches represents a characteristic of that church. For example, Ephesus, the word means darling. And it represents the church in its early state, in its infant state, starting with the apostles. Now for them, like many marriages today, that church slipped into a routine. They lost their passion for Christ. They lost their first love. You might say that they were married to the ministry, but not to the master. Jesus told them, hey, return to your first love. Second church was Smyrna, whose name we looked at last week means myrrh. And remember we saw that myrrh was a fragrance derived through crushing. And that represents a suffering church. The period where Satan sought to crush the church through persecution. That lasted for three centuries, beginning with Nero in 65 AD and ending with 
Diocletian in 313 A.D. We noted that during that time, some six million Christians were martyred for their faith. It was Satan's attempt to stamp out the church through persecution. But what Satan did not expect was that the persecution would only strengthen the church, purify the church, and empower the church. We see that going on in California to this day as they're, you know, setting to shut down churches and, and, and all of a sudden people are coming to church like never before. I love it. So when persecution doesn't work, Satan goes, you know what? If you can't beat them, join them. And that really is what's represented with the Church of Pergamos, the compromised church. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see four things. We're going to see the place, the praise, the problem, and the prescription. First, the place. The name of the, the city is called Pergamos. It comes from two Greek words. The Greek prefix per is seen in the words like pervert. It means opposition. And then the suffix gamos uh, is seen in words like monogamy and bigamy. It means marriage. Pergamos then means an objectionable marriage. What a fitting description prophetically of really this next phase in church history. Now, we'll talk about that in a moment. The city itself was a, the glamour spot of Asia. It was the Hollywood of Asia. It was the, the Las Vegas of Asia, if you would. It's a place where rock stars would have hung out. Maybe they had a hard rock cafe of Pergamos. I don't know. It was known for its rampant idolatry, its wickedness, its sexual immorality. Yet despite its glamour, Pergamos was a very religious center. Like most, most ancient cities, there was this high point in the city or this Acropolis. And at the highest point of this city was this 40-foot altar to Zeus. And so if you were to look at the top of the city, this giant altar to Zeus looked like this huge architectural throne. And this could be what Jesus is referring to when he says in verse 13 that Pergamos is a place where Satan's throne is at. It really was the, the center, the headquarters of satanic opposition and the Gentile base for all false religions. It was especially known as the center for worship of this deity called Asclepius. Asclepius was a god of medicine or the god of, of healing. He was represented by a staff holding a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. Now, because of this famous temple to this Roman god of healing, sick and diseased people from all over the Roman Empire flocked to Pergamos for relief. And I love William Barclay's commentary on this. He says, when, when the people went to the temple to be healed, they would crawl through these dark corridors and as you crawl through, there's little holes in the walls and you'd hear people on the other side saying, you're getting better, you're getting better. It's kind of like a mind over matter, you know, a positive confession type of thing. Now, if that didn't work, then once you reach the center of this temple, you would have to spend the night on this, this cold stone floor, dark, you couldn't see anything pitch black. But then they would let the snakes loose. I kid you not, that's what it says. Seriously, now these, these snakes, they were not poisonous, but they were snakes still nonetheless and pretty awful. And the belief was in this God, if, if a snake happened to crawl over your body, it meant that Asclepius was having mercy on you and he was going to heal you. Now I'm thinking, if I wasn't healed, I'm fine. I don't need to be healed. I don't need snakes crawling on me. I'll just live with it. 
But the point is, as we get into this letter, we certainly see Satan slithering around the church, seeking to touch the believers, not for healing, but deception and compromise. Now this brings us to point number two, the praise. Jesus had some good things to say to this church. He begins in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. Now remember the word angel is messenger. It can refer to the pastor of the church. I mean, think, think about what it would be like as a pastor to know that you're getting a letter from Jesus telling you how your church is doing. I don't know if I'd want to open it. You know, oh, okay, Lord, how are we doing? But he begins and he says in verse 12, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. We looked at this before. The sharp two-edged sword means the word of God. Jesus is saying his word is truth. It cuts to the heart. Listen, it's the word of God that has the answer to man's needs and man's sin. In Pergamos' uh, case, it was a false religion that was leading the whole church to compromise that's why Jesus is pointing them back to the Word of God. Because of the paganism and the false teaching that crept into the church, the only way true change could happen, could take place, is getting back to the Word of God, what the Word of God says, clinging to the Word of God. It's the Word of God that brings conviction to our hearts and changes our way of thinking. It sets us on the right path. That's what Psalm 119 tells us. Verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. When the Lord wants to correct us, He's not going to do it by giving us some warm, cozy feeling all over or some, you know, positive, hey, you're good, just hang in there, good, you know, a, a, a you know, positive pep rally. He's going to give us His word. In fact, Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. See, if Jesus wants to make changes in your life, He's going to do it through His Word, revealing His Word to you. And so that's why the teaching in the Word of God is so important to us. Jesus said we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And the only way to be not of the world is to be in the Word of God. Now, back to the things that Jesus was saying this church was doing well, the praise. Look at verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Listen, Jesus is saying this was a cool church. Jesus is saying, good job. You've kept the faith. You've not denied my name even when persecuted. One of your leaders, Antipas, he was faithful even unto death. Now, we don't know much about this man named Antipas other than what Jesus says here. His name actually means against all. Church tradition says that Antipas was put inside a brass bowl and roasted to death. Horrible. His life represents really uh, millions of believers who for centuries would stand against all that the devil could muster up and still remain faithful and victorious in life and even in death. In his day, Antipas was a nobody. He was just a face in the crowd. He wasn't known by many, but he was and is known by the Lord. So much so that his name made it in the Word of God. Listen, if you want to have a reputation with anybody, have it with God. Don't worry about what other people think about you. Worry about what God thinks about you. And here we read the Lord is complimenting this church and what it did well. 
What, which makes me ask the question, what compliment would the Lord give our church today? What compliment would the Lord give you today? Are you pleasing Him with your walk with the Lord? Are you pleasing Him in the ministry that God's called you to be a part of? Are you pleasing Him with your attitudes, with your conversations? Are you pleasing Him with the way you serve your wife or, or, or love your husband or, or love your kids? Because Jesus begins by saying, I know where you live. Look what he says in verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know what goes on in your house when no one is watching. In other words, you can't hide from God. He knows what's going on in your life when others are not around. I know where you live, he says. Now, this really means that God was aware of his people, that, he was, that they were surrounded by non-Christians. He was aware and he understood the pressures by the world to conform to its standards and its values. Jesus is saying, I know where you're living. I know where your home is. I know where you dwell. For a time, you've got to stay there and hang in there. I'm not going to take you out of here. You can't run away. You can't flee the dangerous situation. Even though you're living right where Satan's throne is at, you have to stay. Man, what a perfect description of where we're at in our sin-cursed world today. We can't run away. You know, We have to dwell here until Jesus takes us home, hopefully via the rapture. And in a world that's really turned anti-God, it's hard. It's difficult. But Jesus is saying to you and I, I understand. I know where you're living. I know what you have to face. Be faithful like Antipas. Listen, it's not about being surrounded by a sin-cursed world, but it's only when we give into it and make those compromises that we sin against God. And I think we all know of professed believers who at one time were walking with the Lord uh, and now they, they sold out to the world. They've gone back to the things of the world and be it the lust of the flesh or the pride of life or the, or, or the lust of the eyes, whatever it is, they're no longer walking with the Lord. God help us to be like Antipas because he would not sell out uh, even in spite of the persecution. He gave his life for Christ. So here, the Lord is praising the church for the good things. I know your works, he says. I know you hold fast to my name. I know you're doing a great job. Now again, as the other two letters, if we could stop here, this would be great. <laughs> you know, I love it. I mean, don't you wish you can go back to the beginning of, of the, the letter to Ephesus? Good things. Yeah, right on. Let's stop there. Smyrna, wait. Good way to go. Pergamos, let's stop right here. Unfortunately, Jesus has got more to say. Or fortunately, he does. You know, I've had people come up to me after I've, I've taught a sermon. What a great sermon that was. But, okay, but what? What I say wrong? What did what? What? Because you never know what's going to follow. But Jesus tells us what to follow. He begins with that wonderful word, but, and we know what follows. He says, but I have a few things against you. And you think, well, what could go wrong with a church like this? It was a great church. They kept the faith. They remained faithful to God. But the Lord says, I have a few things against you. Now, this is our third point, if you're taking notes, the problem. And again, we know the problem. It's compromise. Now, let's look at this first prophetically, and then we'll look at it secondly, historically. First, prophetically speaking, by 312 AD, the last of the ten Roman emperors that had persecuted the church was finally dead. There was struggle for power in the Roman Empire That when this young man named Constantine... Uh, rose to fame, engaged in battle. According to legend, he saw a cross and he heard a voice from heaven saying, in this sign conquer. 
Thus you have the so-called conversion of Constantine to Christianity. What really happened was this. Substantially outnumbered, Constantine noticed there was a large segment of the population that was not enlisting in the army, and they were the Christians. So his so-called conversion provided him with an infusion of new troops, and he went on to conquer a pivotal battle, and when he marched into Rome, he was hailed as the end of his disputed emperor. As it turned out, Constantine conquered more than an opposing army. In a sense, he conquered the church. Not permanently, because Jesus said the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. But Constantine, so his so-called conversion, led to certain reforms in the Roman Empire that had disastrous consequences for Christians. Because at that point, Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Constantine had an unusual way of bringing people to faith in Christ. Convert to Christianity or die. I mean, can you imagine an altar call like that? If you want Christ this morning, just raise your hand. If you decide not to give your life to Christ this morning, the ushers are going to come and make their way to your seat and chop off your head. You decide. I mean, you know, the gospel is compromised when conversion is forced. And Constantine killed many true believers who refused to submit to his distorted band of Christianity. During the Crusades in the Middle Ages, unbelievable brutality was committed against non-Christians, especially Muslims and Jews, in the name of the Prince of Peace. In fact, to this day, when you use the phrase, the word crusade around a Jew or a Muslim, many times it, 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 you'll get a negative reaction because this was wrong. True Christianity was never meant to go out and conquer militarily in the name of the cross. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for self-defense. There is a place for a nation to use military force and law enforcement. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the work of getting the gospel out to the world. I like what Pastor Greg Gloria said. It's not to be done with M16s, but with John 316s. God doesn't want us to manipulate people into conversion. It's got to be a true change of a person's heart. It's a work of faith that God does in a person's heart. Well, here the church now was free from persecution from the outside. Now they're facing a more, far more devastating enemy on the inside as compromise with the world crept into the church and the influence of paganism in the church increased greatly. Once Christianity became the official religion of Rome, all Roman babies would be legally required as a baby to be baptized into the Christian faith. And little by little, pagan practices began to be adopted by the church itself and, and it was shrouded in mystery and ritualism and, and would strongly resemble that of ancient Babylon. Pagan priests and practices were integrated into the worship and into the Christian church. Let me give you a few examples. The Chaldean Tau, which was an elevation of this large T on the end of a pole, was changed to the sign of the cross. You had the celibacy of priests and nuns that were introduced during this age from roots in paganism. In fact, let me give you the road to ruin, to compromise. A.D. 300 began prayers for the dead, also the making of the sign of cross, if you're familiar with that. A.D. 375, worship of saints and angels. A.D. 394, mass was first instituted. A.D. 431, the worship of Mary began. 
AD 500, priests began dressing differently than laymen. AD 526, what's called the sacrament of extreme unction, or praying for those about to die to assure their place in heaven came into place. And then AD 593, the doctrine of purgatory was introduced. The doctrine states that when you die, Jesus didn't completely cover all of your sins. You still have to die. You still have to pay the penalty for some of your sins. And once you suffer in this place of purgatory, then you can come back into heaven. And just 300 years, the church became more Roman and less Christian. That's why it's called the, the Roman church. Now, we'll look more at the problems that went on during this time next week as we'll look at the church of Thyatira and then don't think the Protestants don't get off the line there. Or the, the, we'll look at the church of Sardis and it had a lot of problems as well. But prophetically, this is where the church fits in. Now, this brings us back to historically. Look now at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So the first thing Jesus says here is they have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. I think most of you, if you're not, remember the story of Balaam. When Balaam was asked by King Balak, uh, the Moabite king, to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel, God for, forbid Balaam to pronounce the curse. And he was trying to do it anyway, and, and God kept sending an angel to block his way, and then we read that, that Balaam actually got into a conversation with his donkey. The Lord opened up the donkey's mouth and said, what, what have I done to you that you've struck me three times? Now what's so amazing is not, not that the donkey spoke, but that Balaam actually answered the donkeys if you talk to donkeys all the time. Something that you do. Because Balaam says, I wish there was a sword in my hand for an hour, I'd kill you. Well, after three failed attempts to curse Israel, Balaam resorted to another plan, compromise. And he tells Balak, if your woman, the Moabite woman, seduce the Israelite men, they will introduce idol worship to them, and through that Israel will compromise, and as a result, they will bring, as a result of that compromise, they will bring a curse upon themselves. Well, the plan worked, and, and, and their compromise had devastating results. As a result of the compromise, God sent a plague into the camp of the Israelites that killed 24,000 of them. Compromise of inside the camp accomplished more than what no sword could have accomplished from outside the camp conquering God's people. The plague was finally stopped when the sword was unsheathed and, and Phineas entered a tent where an Israelite man and a Moabite woman were having sex and, and ran that sword through them and killed them both. So then what is this doctrine of Balaam that Jesus is speaking of here? It, it's Pergamos. It's an objectionable marriage with the world. You know, in, in the many ways the church has taken on the same personality as the world around us. I mean, the divorce rate is virtually the same within the church as those in the world. The percentage of couples living together outside of marriage is, is, is telling how we've allowed the world to become our role model. We've allowed what God calls sin to be in the church and even accept it. And if you disagree, then there are those that say, well, then you have a wrong view of Christianity. God calls us to love everyone, no matter what. You're wrong. And they'll say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you because I don't, I don't like your form of Christianity. 
Yeah, we're commanded to love everyone, sinners included, but we are also commanded to call sin what it is. It's sin. And the majority of the pulpits in America today are afraid to use words like sin and repentance and salvation and eternal death and hell and adultery and, 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 and homosexuality and many other words. We, we have also become afraid to take a stand against things that God considers an abomination. Abortion. Same-sex marriage. It's not popular today to take a stand for righteousness in our society. But if a church, if the church doesn't take a biblically accurate stand on what's right and what's wrong, who's going to do it? There's no one left. With all the voices in the world pushing evil, pushing abortion, pushing all the sorts of sexual morality, we are living in a time when we must not remain silent. Even if people aren't listening, we have to be the voice for good. We must speak the truth. We have the good news. We have the gospel. We mustn't remain silent. Again, if the church doesn't speak up, who will? See, I believe we've gotten to ourselves to a place where presently at because the church has kept silent. It's a fault of the church that our society has become so corrupt. I like uh, evangelist Leonard Ravenhill. He once said, and he's pretty blunt, the world has lost the power to blush over its sin. The church has lost her power to weep over it. It's all because we've fallen for the doctrine of Balaam. We've married with the world. And, and the problem is, is that the danger is becoming married to the world. In fact, we're also married to Jesus Christ. To use a crude but common expression, we don't want to get in bed with the world or the culture of the devil. And we need to start seeing our minor defections as spiritual adultery. In fact, James puts it that way. He couldn't put it any clearer. James 4.4 Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, no one sets out to commit spiritual adultery. But one of the reasons that we do is because we don't see it as that way. It works the same way with physical adultery. It starts by letting your guard down or never putting one up to begin with. And then in the progress, by thinking that the thoughts are not as significant as behavior. Well, I'm just thinking about it. I'm not actually doing it. Spiritual adultery works the same way. We're married to Christ, but we have this adulterous relationship with the world. And before long, we're living lives no different than that of the world. Listen, if Satan can't defeat you as a roaring lion, he's going to attack you as a deceptive serpent. Satan comes along and tempts you and gets you to think, oh, I can handle this little sin. It's not that big of a deal. What's it going to hurt? A little drink, a little flirtation, a little peek at porn, a little taste of this, a little taste of that. But it's dangerous. Listen, you show me a person that has fallen away, and I'll tell you, it didn't happen overnight. It's just little things that turn into big things, and then they lose control, and they say, well, I don't know how this happened. See, they thought they could handle it. They thought they were in control of it. I know I've used this illustration many times before, but it's a perfect example of compromise. And it's a man named Samson. Samson, he was known for his great strength. You know, we always think of Samson as this big buff dude, right? You know, the Bible never says that he was like that. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and then he would do the things that he did. But what if Samson was this scrawny little, you know, guy with a pocket protector and pens in his pocket and... 
glasses, maybe tape on his glasses, and oh, you know, Urkel, you know, I'm Samson Urkel. You don't know. I know they didn't have glasses back then, but you get the idea. I don't know what he looked like, but this we do know, he had long hair. That's because he had taken that Nazarite vow, and part of that vow was to never cut your hair. So his power came from God that was symbolized by the vow in which he wore in his long hair. Well, along comes the devil's secret weapon, a gal named Delilah, and they couldn't take Samson down on the battlefield. They tried and failed. In fact, one day he picked up the, the jawbone of a donkey and killed a thousand Philistines. Another time he picked up the gates of a city and carried them for miles. Good cardiovascular workout, I guess. <laughs> so the devil looks at him and says, okay, I've got to change tactics. I can't beat him in the battlefield, but I can beat him in the bedroom. Because Samson was a he-man with a she-weakness. That's where the devil attacked. Enter Delilah whose name, by the way, means delicate. So she comes along and says, Oh, Samson, you're so big and so strong. Tell me the secret of your strength that I might afflict you. You know you're in a messed up relationship when the girl you meet says that to you. If you're dating someone and she says, Man, don't go out with them again, or a guy for that matter. Well, Samson laughed it off. Afflict me, you, delicate Delilah. I, I kill Philistines for fun and I, I have to worry about little old you. Listen, okay. To humor you, if you braid my hair, then I can't do anything. Really. So he falls asleep. She braids up his hair and yells out, The Philistines are upon us. The Philistines are upon us. They, they burst into the room. Samson throws them out like, a, like rag dolls, laughing it all off. And she says, oh, Samson, you mocked me. You, you, you make me angry, Samson Pooh. <laughs> Listen, tell me the secret of your strength that I may afflict you. I mean, you got to hand it to Delilah. She was up front. I mean, she was honest. Her, she knew what her intentions were. The amazing thing is, Samson keeps playing the game until he finally reveals, a razor's never touched my head. If you shave my head, I will be like any other man. Really? She says, great. He falls asleep in her lap, which is insane. And then he wakes up, guess what? A buzz cut. It's gone. Hair's all gone. Philistines come. He goes to throw them out. He can't, you know. Instead, they gouge out his eyes. They tie him up to this mill. And they, uh, they ground the mill just for the entertainment of the Philistines. Say, but wait a minute. You know, Samson prevailed in the end, didn't he? Yeah, but you remember how he, he prevailed in the end. I mean, he knocked down the pillars on either side in, it, in the Philistine temple. And yeah, it killed the Philistines, but it killed him as well. They all died. Just think of what a testimony Samson would have had if he just simply obeyed God. But you see, he thought he could handle it. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't tell me, oh, I'm strong. I've walked with the Lord for X amount of years and these things will never bring me down. Man, that's the devil's most effective tactic is compromise. And it comes in many different forms. Maybe things in this world start becoming more attractive to you than they used to be in your Christian life. Maybe you found some more important things to do on a Sunday morning than come in for fellowship. Maybe you started listening to the world and the voices in the world instead of the Word of God and now you're not sure what you believe anymore. But whatever's happened, that, that emptiness has returned because slowly but surely you've been compromising and compromising and going in the wrong direction. It's time to turn this around. 
So Jesus says the first problem is out of the doctrine of Balaam. Next thing Jesus has a problem with is there's someone in the church that, that has the holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. He says, You also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, the Nicolaitans, they got a lot of um, attention in these letters. If we understand anything from these letters, we know that what the Nicolaitans taught, what they believed, God absolutely hated. The word Nicolaitan means to lord or rule over or to conquer the people. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was to establish or promote a priesthood that is over the average person in the church. They claimed to have the special relationship with God, a special revelation from God. Understand the New Testament teaches as believers we are all priests. There should be no special class of men or women who are priests over others. When Jesus died upon the cross, that veil in the temple was torn in half from top to bottom, telling us and everyone can have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ and what he did upon that cross. In fact, Paul reemphasizes that in 1 Timothy 2, 5, where he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So any sort of special priesthood that is over believers or between believers and God is contemptible. And God says, I hate it. Not only did the Nicolaitans claim to be superior to other people, but they also did this with a perverted twist. They were involved in all sorts of sexual immorality. They assaulted the church with all sorts of sensual temptations. It was said of the Nicolaitans that they abandoned themselves to the pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. See, their teaching perverted grace. It was replaced with the liberty and the license to sin. So the doctrine of Balaam was compromised. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was lording over people and sinning in the name of liberty. These doctrines were corrupting the church and the Lord says, I hate it. You know, if the Lord says he hates something, I certainly want to hate the same thing he does. He hates worldliness. And nothing corrupts a church quicker than worldliness. Pergamos was a corrupted church, a worldly church. And I think that for most Christians, when we talk about worldliness, I don't think we fully get the big picture of this. We look at worldliness as a bunch of do's and don'ts, and, 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 and we're very uh, careful to avoid certain things that, that are signs of worldliness. But worldliness is much bigger than that. Worldliness is having a heart full of hypocrisy. Worldliness can be criticism of other people. It can be jealousy, bitterness. Worldliness can be envy or, or wrath. It's preoccupation with the details of life rather than eternal treasures. It's preoccupation with self and not loving and serving others. And boy, we live in a very selfish time in society and it hasn't taken long for it to enter the church. Again, that's why the Lord is calling the church to be separate from the world. Not a, a condescending type of separation. But again, to be in the world, but not of the world. Salt, to make people thirsty for the things of God. Light, to point people to Christ. Salt and light, to make people hungry for the faith. We're to be different in a sense. We're to be holy, not pursuing what the world is pursuing. Not living with the mindset of the world or the world system and pleasing to live self. Instead, we live to please God, to live with eternity in view, so that when the world looks at us, they see that there's something different about us. So we've seen the place, the praise, the problem. This brings us to our final point, the prescription. 
You know, when you go to the doc and he says, hey, I got this is what's wrong with you. Here's what you need to do. Here's the prescription. It's like the doctor who said to his patient, I have bad news and worse news. Patient says, well, let's have it. Doctor says, well, the bad news is you only have 24 hours to live. Patient says, well, I can't imagine any worse news than that. The doctor says, I forgot to tell you yesterday. (laughs) Well, here Jesus gives his prescription that will help today, right now. Verse 16 and 17, he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. What is the prescription for the problem of compromise and worldliness? One word. Repent. Repent. Turn away from what you're doing. Not just saying, I'm sorry, but really a change of mind, which then results in a change of heart. Change of attitude results in changing your way. Stop the direction you're going. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart this morning. He's dealing with things in your heart. They're not major things. Just little compromises that you've been making that will eventually destroy you. And the Lord is saying, hey, today is a day I want you to get rid of that. I want you to confess that to me. I want you to get, to get your heart right. Now, why would the Lord say that to us? Because He wants to bless us. He wants to empower us. He wants to fill us with His Spirit. He wants to use each one of us to reach outside of this church into the community with the love of Jesus Christ. But we can only do that, we can only accomplish that if our walk matches our talk. You know, Jesus in speaking to each one of us this morning, when He says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to our church. And then He closes with this challenge in verse 17, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. To him who refuses to compromise, to him who refuses to let the influence of the world dominate their lives, Jesus says, i got some special gifts for you. First, he says, I'll give you some of the hidden manna to eat. Cool. <laughs> I want to see some manna. It'd be really cool. I want to know what manna was like. Actually, the word manna means... What is it? It's manna. What is it? It's manna. What is it? Stop. (laughs) Remember Exodus chapter 16. It tells the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They're running out of food. And when you run out of food and you run out of provisions, even in the most stable of households, it does produce a little bit of murmuring and complaining. And that's what the Israelites did. And they complained to God and saying, Did you really bring us out here, out of Egypt, just to die? But Moses prayed, and God supplied. Same way, you know, we pray God supplies. All we need to do is, 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 is to seek the Lord. And, and Now, what is this hidden manna? Well, there in the Jewish temple sat the Ark of the Covenant. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were the Ten Commandments that, that Moses received. There was a rod that budded, the Aaron's rod, and the third item tucked away in the Ark of the, of the Covenant was a jar of manna to remind God's people of God's provision for them. Well, ancient Hebrew tradition has it that in 587 B.C., when the Babylonians ransacked Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah went into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the, the Covenant was, took the jar of manna out of the Ark when he was fleeing from the Babylonians. He went up to the Mount Sinai and hid that manna in the cleft of the rock. 
So it was known as a hidden manna. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came, he would bring with them the jar of hidden manna. Here the Lord is promising to the one who overcomes the hidden manna. Basically, it's promising the blessings of living with the Messiah in his kingdom when he establishes it. Here's what he's saying. If you're willing to abstain and refrain from the seductions of this world, you will enjoy blessings now and reward in the kingdom of God. And then he says, I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. That's the second thing that we're given, something different. Now the stone is something cultural. In the ancient courts, different from today, trial juries had guilty or innocents by whatever stone they would, would, they, they would lay out. A black stone, you were guilty. A white stone, you were innocent. So for us, a white stone is an acquittal of innocence because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. No, the Bible says, though our sins were scarlet, he'll make them as white as snow. But it also says here that on that stone we were given a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. It's like a personal message from the Lord to the one he loves, to the one who overcomes. He says, as we enter into eternity, we're going to be given a new name. So if you've not been happy with the name that your parents gave you when you were born, you say, I've never liked this name. Jesus says, i got a name for you. Now, now, what that is, you know, don't know, uh, but it's a brand new name. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, a personal message from Christ to the ones he loves, which shows that their admission passed into eternal glory. It is so personal that only the person who receives it will know what it is. I like that. Now, listen, all of this is based on what Jesus says here. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give. But you say, I can only overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Absolutely. Absolutely. As believers, we are overcomers. The only way we can overcome sin and death and compromise of worldliness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing the work He accomplished for you on the cross, that He alone died for your sins. He took your sin, my sin, upon Himself so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of it. And there's no salvation and no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's only through Jesus. He offers forgiveness. Listen, as we close, the sin of Pergamum was a toleration of evil, a sort of have your cake and eat it to philosophy. And sadly, we see that very prevalent in the world today. They want to go to church. People want to go to church, but when they get around to it. They want to go to heaven, but they want to live in sin. They want what they want, sin and commit immorality, lie when necessary, cheat if they have to, still if it suits them, and hate and get revenge when someone crosses them. It's the idea of sitting to your heart's content, telling yourself, God will understand. God knows my heart. You know, it's a term my son phrased, greasy grace. Listen, if you think you can sin to your heart's content without repercussions, if you think you can go out and break the commandments of God over and over and over again because you're an exception to the rule, it's deception. You're deceiving yourself. That is why Jesus is very clearly the key to overcoming is repentance. So I have to ask as we close today, are you compromising in little areas? Listen, little things will become big things in good ways and bad ways. Little compromises will become big compromises. Little commitments become bigger commitments. A little honesty here will mean a lot more of it later. A little deception here will mean a lot more of it later. See, you decide the end of your life by the beginning. 
You know, the Bible says we're running in this race. And the goal of the race is not to run fast, but it's to finish it. And it really doesn't matter if you're in first place for nine-tenths of the race. If you collapse before the finish line, it doesn't matter. And that finish line is going to be here before we know it. You know, we all assume, I'm going to live till I'm 80 or 90. I'm going to live till I'm 100. But you know how many people that finish line came a lot sooner than they anticipated? We don't know when that time is going to come in our lives. So we want to run this race well. We want to run it strong. We want to cross over with flying colors to hear our Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. My hope and prayer for each one of us here this morning is that we'll be men and women of character and integrity because Jesus knows where we live. We're living in a hostile world, hostile to our beliefs. But the good news is God will see us through as we trust in Him just like Antipas. That's why if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you not leave here today without making that first step to follow Christ today. Maybe this morning you've come in and you realize that you've had some compromise and some worldliness has crept in your life and you're no longer walking with the Lord as the way you once did. Man, now's the time. Get right with the Lord. Do what He says. Say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've been compromising. I'm sorry, Lord, for the way I've been living. Forgive me, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to, to walk with you. He will reignite that flame in your heart once again and the love that you have for him. But you've got to make that commitment to him and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I'm going to recommit my life to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, grace, mercy. Lord, thank you that you are the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and Lord, I thank you that we can come to this place we call Calvary Chapel Springfield. We can read your word. Lord, and your word speaks to our hearts. And maybe this morning it has spoke to some of us here. And you revealed some compromises in our lives that you want us to deal with. Lord, help us not to leave this place without dealing with those compromises. Without saying, Lord, it stops here. By the power of your spirit, Lord, I will no longer do those things. I want to recommit my life to you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that that deals with it, they would do that this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not made that initial commitment to you, Lord, they don't know what it means to compromise because they've never really lived for you. I pray, Father, that they would make that commitment to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you will turn no one away. Your word says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Lord, no matter where we're at, we can come to you and find grace and mercy and forgiveness and help in time of need. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Thank you for your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.